Welcome, take a seat. Well, let me just begin by going back to the goals that I set right at the beginning of this talk, um, series of talks. And the goal was, um, probably it was twofold. Uh, one was what I'd actually call, um, I suppose, a pastoral goal for myself and for us all, which is the images of the new heaven and the new earth, death, etc., are weakly developed generally in the Christian canon. That's my strong view. And yet they're the source of our hope. Um, and so building a kind of more luminous picture of the city of God, the destiny, was really important. And um, I think the other thing is, uh, so the second thing goal I had was to present a strong hypothesis. Remember I said that great phrase, the truth proceeds more readily from error than from confusion. So I laid out the alternatives around hell um, and universal salvation and uh, essentially what I wanted, want to do is, is advance a hypothesis which I hold as more and more likely to be true, which is the, the hope of a universal salvation. I'm doing that because in a way to understand anything in a, in a debate or in an inquiry, you need to develop a point of view. You need to kind of roll it out in your mind and you can do that without working out whether you agree with it or not. Um, people, the mistake we make in a lot of inquiries, human beings, is we come to early conclusions. In my business, all the time we're fighting against it. So people don't know how to develop things, so therefore ideas don't grow on them. And this is an idea that has to grow on you. Um, so that, so I'm, I just want to remind us all, that's what I'm doing here. Uh, there's a third kind of goal, which I'm, I'm absolutely, this one I'm 100% for, which is this that we need to take off the table the concept that universal salvation is a heresy. It is a very val if valid position and has been for 2,000 years, held by some of the greatest theologians the church has produced. So unless you want to say Jürgen Moltmann is a heretic, unless you want to say Gregory of Nyssa is a heretic, we cannot say that this is a heretical position. And, and I'm so against that it doesn't matter because actually in, in in, in my view, the preponderance of evidence is actually on the positive side. But because the way the debate is set up, the hell thing, which of course has got a lot more publicity in New South Wales in the last week after Israel Folau tweeted his glorious message that all gays go to hell, um, that, that has a, that's the kind of the incumbent position. And like all incumbent positions, it just kind of knocks out debate. So there's no question in my mind that it's a good thing to discuss and develop. Um, now, um, and by the way, since last time, I, my wife stumbled on the movie Come Sunday. Has anyone seen it? Oh, well, you've got to see it. This is really, this, this universal salvation is a much more live thing than I had realised. The movie is it's on Netflix. Netflix, it was made, do you know the, um, the people who make This American Life, the podcast? Well, they interviewed this guy. It's a, it's a movie with, with quite famous actors in it that Netflix have produced about two months ago. So he's one of the top young charismatic pastors in fundamentalist America who came to the conclusion that there's no hell. And he was up and coming, wealthy, growing, and he, he suffered the loss of everything for this. 
No, no, it's not Rob Bell. Rob Bell's actually, um, now the guy's name, he's, a, he's an African-American. Um, sorry, I forget his name, but he was uh, very unusual because he was very effective in, I think, Tulsa. So kind of south, but his congregations were black and white. He crossed a very intellectual <coughs> compared to most of the sort of, you know, Pentecostal type, African-American, very, very gifted man. So it's a really interesting story. Now, he was actually part of the story, if you see the, the, the movie, which is very well acted by some very well-known actors. But, and he, he consulted to it a lot. Part of the story is uh, that um, he was declared a heretic by you know, the bishops of that particular denomination. So anyway, um, and since then I've been Googling around, and there's definitely a kind of a rising tide of people considering this when you have intellects as strong as Bentley Hart's advancing it. So in that vein, today's message which I've spent ages kind of pondering and <laughs> marinating my mind in and being blessed by, I'm going to advance the case uh, of um, what was called apocatas. I knew I couldn't say it. <laughs> Apocatastasis, <laughs> which is a, a translation of the word Peter uses in Acts chapter 3, the restitution of all things. So that phrase is the phrase that covers, and universal salvation is a, is a minimalized version of that. It's the re restitution of all things. Gregory called it world reformation. <coughs> now, one thing I can tell you, for, and I, as I, what I said in the, uh, this, this debate has largely been formed between Augustine and Gregory, and the more I've read, the truer that is, in terms of their impact on tradition. Let's just say prior to Augustine, there was much more openness of debate and he came down very strongly and powerfully on the eternal hell side of things. And as his, the, the magnitude of his reputation grew, that led to, um, I won't go into the details of it, but that led to, I suppose, the hardening up of the hell position. What, I, what we said we'd do in this talk is compare the two of them. Now, I decided I'm not going to do that tonight in any detail. Not because I'm not capable of it. I have spent ages studying the city of God. I think I'm really across it. It is incredibly revealing to me and he's far narrower in his thinking than Gregory. There's an inverse proportion between bulk and profundity. I often say volume is the last refuge of the intellectually mediocre. That's the city of God, and that's on the making of man. The profundity of the ideas in on the making of man is as thick as that. Whereas the city of God, to be honest with you, familiar as I'm fairly familiar with the world he lives in of Roman philosophy, is actually as thin as that theologically. Not that it's, got, it's got some great stuff in it, but Bentley is a mixed blessing. So what I decided to do tonight... And I've got to say, I love Augustine. He has written some of the most gorgeous sentences and phrases out. But um, uh, he's, it's, it's extremely revealing to me how his mental framework as set up in the city of God is just going to lead to this particular position of heaven and hell. But I won't, I, I'll, I'll just allude to that a bit today because I thought, heck, you know, most of you here, I presume, have not read Gregory of Nyssa. Most of you, I presume, have not read the city of God. In one hour, how can we compare the two of them without doing any kind of justice to them? I think the best thing for me to do is I want to actually make Gregory's case for you in, a, in as much detail as I can and make a few little allusions to Augustine. 
Afterwards, we could toss up, because I'm quite prepared to do the next talk, then comparing the two of them, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? So, um, now, let's just remind ourselves of the role that Gregory had and who he was, briefly. Um, part of what are called the Capitation Fathers, essentially a threesome, two brothers and their mate. His elder brother was Basil, uh, the mate was another Gregory, the three of them knew each other at university. They were brilliant students from Cappadocia, which is in Turkey, which means they were Eastern, which meant very importantly, they read Greek fluently and Augustine did not. Augustine relied on the Latin Vulgate and it really got him into a bad place. One of the preeminent students in the world of Augustine is an Italian woman, uh, Remilleri, phenomenal lady, and she's a great advocate of origin, who's another universalist, but she's just made it really, really clear that his, his misunderstanding of the word eternal really shackled him. Uh, so Gregory and, Gregory and his brothers were profoundly intelligent, um, from a profoundly long-standing Christian family, hugely influenced by the mother, a bit like Timothy. Um, and in the family of these five, nobody quite knows how many siblings there were, but in a, one of the great families of the Christian church. I mean, Basil and his younger brother Peter, they were bishops. They started, they wrote theology. They started huge public works. And apparently the most brilliant of all was the, was the older sister, Macrina, um, who taught them all theology. Gregory was himself... Um, Young, brilliant, terrible administrator, daydreamer, didn't want to join the church, wanted to pursue his chosen career, secular career, quote-unquote, of rhetoric, and became a bishop rather reluctantly. Uh, importantly, and this is um, from the book, Andrew, you've given me, you know, The Cruelty of Heresy, importantly, it was they who rescued the Trinity, the Cappadocian Fathers. They finally resolved intellectually and philosophically the Trinity and the Nicene Creed is essentially their contribution. So there's no one can say of the Gregory and the Cappadocian Fathers, they're some kind of marginal fringe group, right? These guys cemented the vision of God that we now all are in. So, and of them all, Gregory was widely recognised as the most profound. So with that introduction, let's have a go at it. Um, Acts 3.19, change your hearts, this is Bentley Hart's translation, change your hearts and turn about so that your sins may be expunged, so that times of renewal may come from before the face of the Lord, and he may send the anointed who was appointed for you beforehand, Jesus, whom heaven must hold until the times of that restoration of all things, that's apocatharsis, of which God spoke, through the mouth of his holy prophets an age ago. Phenomenal climactic sentence to his sermon in Acts chapter 3. It is a very, very bold statement. The question is, what does all mean? It's the only question. Does all mean all or not all? You could sum up the doctrine of so-called universal salvation with that question. This is one of the ones where the ball's in the court of the traditionalists. So all doesn't mean all. Tell me how it doesn't mean all. 
So in other words, there has to be a response to that because it says all. So, um, one thing I will say to you that is very clear to me is that people who discuss this and stay in their same evangelical mental landscape, it doesn't matter what side you come onto, it's not worth it. Inevitably, the people who end up in the kind of Gregory camp, there's a, they have a far profounder eschatology than anyone else does. I mean, Maltman wrote The Theology of Hope. Has anyone tried to read it? It's breathtaking. You know, he is very universally accredited in the 20th century with reaffirming eschatology. It's the most breathtaking vision of God and Christ. You, you read. So when you've got that sort of vision, you come back down to the question of, you know, the fate of souls, it fits inside a bigger picture. Almost universally, the people who go towards this cosmic redemption have a huge eschatology and picture of God. So really, you can't go directly at the question of, you know, what's the fate of individual souls without first saying, my mental framework has got to get enlarged to an eschatological vision. It'd be the equivalent, for instance, of ask, asking a question to do with uh, the theory of light and wanting an answer without actually getting our minds exploded by the theory of relativity. Does that make sense? So an, an eschatology is as profound as the theory of relativity. So let's, uh, my, my, my job tonight um, is to take you through Gregory, primarily this book. I figured not many of you will read it, so I'm going to try and do my best as a literary teacher, an English teacher, to help you enjoy the ride tonight through this book. Okay? If you want to go buy it, it's readily available. It's a bit like reading Shakespeare, you've got to unpack it. This is Bentley Hart, and it's long and complicated, and I'm sorry, but I think it's worth it, on Gregory. The first theological insight I learned from Gregory of Nyssa, and I suspect the last to which I will cling when all others fall away, is that the Christian doctrine of creation is not merely cosmological or metaphysical, but an eschatological claim about the world's relation to God. And it's a moral claim about the nature of God himself. In the end of all things, is their beginning. And only from the perspective of the end can one know what they are and why they have been made and who the God is that has called them forth from nothingness. You feel like you're peering down the corridor of the Big Bang Theory here? Well, that's exactly what we're doing. And Gregory sought with an integrity. This is an important word, intellectual integrity. He is a brilliant disciplined thinker who follows it all the way through. Poor Augustine, like he just gets distracted all the time. He begins to talk about the creation of man. He's bang on to the creation of angels. He's far more interested in the creation of angels and the creation of men, as an example. Um, Gregory sought with an integrity only found in Origen and Maximus and not alas in, alas in Augustine. Protology, protology is the study of the beginning and eschatology, the study of the end, are a single science, a single revelation disclosed in the God-man. There is no profounder meditation on the meaning of creation than Gregory's on the soul and resurrection, and no more brilliantly realized eschatological vision than his on the making of man or making of humanity. And for him, clearly one can say that the cosmos has been truly created 
only when it reaches its consummation in the union of all things with the first good. When humanity has been truly created, only when humans united in the living body of Christ become at last that godlike thing that is humankind according to the image. It's pretty like sort of big way, but it's actually a very good summary which I'm going to unpack for you. Now, let's begin with these big words. Remember we began last time with the cosmos as the house of God. I said the hell question is actually not a biblical question. We got rid of that word. It actually is a bad translation. It hardly occurs in the Bible. The house of God is everywhere from Genesis to Revelation. What house are you building? What's the place of your rest? We've got to go back to that. So, if we say the cosmos is the house of God, moves, it moves us the core of God's interest and plans uh, from the domain of religion to the domain of all of life and nature. So you've actually got to be talking about the origin of the universe. You've got to be talking about matter. You've got to be talking about every single shred of reality once you say the cosmos is God's house. And importantly, you move from the domain of heaven, which, by the way, is Augustine's city of God, to the domain of earth, which is God dwelling with humanity. Augustine's very weak on that. Augustine's heaven is like heaven, whereas really God's interest is in the created order. Um, so let's just look at the cosmos and how we think about the cosmos. Um, and this is a great title, it's not mine, it's Rick's. Uh, he wrote an essay a few years ago, which is fantastic, it's worth Googling, called What If Truth Was Personal? Actually, it was after we met and I talked about rhetoric, because we live in a world where truth tends to be objectified into scientific facts. But what if truth was personal? What if truth wasn't just facts, but your character? So, um, Cosmology, what does cosmology mean? Sorry, it's down the bottom. Cosmology means science. So if I look at the universe as it's through a cosmology spectrum, I'm like a scientist. Big Bang Theory. I'm in a world of how. How did this begin? Metaphysics is bigger. Metaphysics is philosophy, which is probably Augustine's world. What is going on with eternity and time and these kind of big, big metaphysical questions that you get into? Eschatology Eschatology turns it into a love letter. The cosmos is an act of love because it's a why question. And to go further, what if creation was like a birth? What if that's the way to think about the Big Bang Theory? I have absolutely no doubt the Holy Spirit told me this on the running machine at Chatswood Fitness first about a year ago. And I'm saying, Lord, what's the, how do I get my mind around all this? And he said, get your mind, Tony, about your birth, that moment when you were conceived. How eerie is that? Okay, that's what I did with the universe. It's better to think of the universe as an act of love. And if I say, where did you come from, Tony? Would it be true to give me a microbiological description of the growth of my cells? Or would it be true to talk about my parents' love for each other? Well, if you're in eschatology, you're back talking about the parents' love for each other. That's how the cosmos got here. It's an act of love. 
And what if we thought of God more like that woman there? And what if we thought of the universe more like that baby? We could be closer to the truth. The kind of paternalistic, father, objectified, laws of physics. It's all true, but I don't think it's the highest truth. Okay. I was going to talk a lot about that, but because it turns out to be true. It turns out that in Colossians, the universe is a person. Astonishingly. So, let's go <coughs> to Gregory. <coughs> this is Gregory's introduction. Why am I writing this book? He knew that his task was grand. He had absolutely no pro illusions about that. <coughs> um, by the way, in contrast, Augustine's purposes in the city of God is to pursue the beginning and ends <coughs> of the two cities. Um, where he got the second city from, I have no idea. But the city of God is about two cities, heaven and hell, heaven and earth, not one. Um, fundamentally, Gregory thought there's only one city because there's only one God. <coughs> the scope of our proposed inquiry is not small. It is second to none of the wonders of the world. For no other existing thing except the creation of human beings has been made like God. It is our business to leave nothing unexamined of all that concerns man. Sorry about the masculine language, but that's what he wrote, of what we believe to have taken place previously, of what we now see, and of the results which are expected afterwards to appear. He's going to look at man through the origins, the experience, and the future. That's his past, present, future schematic. Moreover, and he's not an idiot because of this bit, we must fit together according to the explanation of scripture and to that derived from reasoning, those statements which seem to be opposed so that they are brought to one and the same end. He sees there's contradictions in life and in the scripture and he's got to get them together as well. If the divine power so discovers a hope for what is beyond hope and for what is extricable. Sorry, that last sentence doesn't make sense. I must have not quite got that all down. So that's his grand scheme. So this is the summary of the book, um, the flow of his inquiry. Um, he, it's, the entire book is structured by uh, Genesis 1.27, let us make man our enemy. It just goes back to that verse or those cluster of verses again and again. <coughs> the first thing is the beginning. It's about the first five chapters. Each chapter is about between two to five pages long. They're very short. Um, the beginning is the, what he calls the origins and the archetypes. There's an empty stage, it's beautiful, until a royal ruler appears who is an archetype of the divine beauty. God is the painter, we are the colours. That's a summary of his first five chapters. Pretty intriguing. Then our present experiences, the qualities. So what, is, what are the qualities that humans have? Um, 
the faculties of divine rule, which are capax day, which make us capable of apprehending God. Uh, what I call weak but strong, the craft of the hands, language and the mind. So he, look, he, he goes into granular detail about the physical construction of humanity, the, the relationship between the body and the senses, all to say, how does this equip us to be the royal ruler of the cosmos? What about the nature of evil? He's not naive. He's not somebody who gets to this wondrous optimistic vision by sheer optimism. But his redefinition of evil is breathtaking, brilliant and incredibly useful. For Augustine, evil was an infection, original sin. It was an infection. For Gregory, evil was a direction. Who you're talking to, who you're looking at. I'll explain that more. <clears throat> then finally, the, the end of all things, the future, uh, world reformation, the tree of life. I'm just trying to turn the air conditioner on. Yeah, it's on now. It, this is incredibly important. That little equation dominates Gregory. Life is super abundant and evil is limited. They are not equal. Unfortunately, they are equalised completely in Augustine. Good and evil are equalised forces, which is a heresy. For Gregory, this was unthinkable. Only God is good, only God is superabundant, and he must prevail, logically. Goodness will exhaust evil. He regarded the resurrection. By the way, when he uses the word resurrection, you have to be careful. He's talking about Resurrections. He's talking about Christ's resurrection, but he's talking about the resurrection of all humanity, the universal restoration. And he says it's actually inevitable. The resurrection is an inevitable consequence of the goodness of God. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> with that, uh, <clears throat> the, um, the beginning... Only you'll only understand the end if you understand the beginning, and you'll only understand the beginning if you understand the end. That's how you frame this story. So you want to understand anything about humanity, you've got to understand why we're created. You want to understand where we're going, you've got to understand why we're created. That, that arrow is like a mile wide in Gregory's mind and reasoning. He never lets it go. That's what Bentley Hart said with an integrity no one else has matched. We all talk about being made in the image of God and full stop. Right? It, for him, it's the opening verse of a huge inquiry. It's breathtaking. The claim to say we're made, in, we are like God. This is a breathtaking claim. And he takes it enormously seriously. And it will frame everything. And this phenomenal statement. The man that was manifested at the first creation of the world and he that shall be after the consummation of all things, they both equally bear in themselves the divine image. The divine image had to begin and has to end. That's the book on a page. So far so good? Right, oh, I'm going to skip through this one because I'm coming back to it 
somewhere else. Oops, that's another one that I don't want to look at. He begins with an empty garden. This is just an epic. The trouble with this is he's very poetic and you want to read lots and lots of it. And I'll just, I can imagine I'll be here reading at 10 o'clock and everyone will be quietly either left or asleep. <laughs> His picture of creation is metaphysically subtle. It's a balance between change and stability. Won't go into that, but it's really interesting to me. Because we're all in the middle of that. We're growing old, but we're the same person. I mean, that's one of the great paradoxes of life. So he, 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 I won't go into that. But he says, all things were already arrived at their end. He imagines the creation is finished, up to verse 25. Um, the earth was full of her produce, bringing forth fruits at the same time with flowers. The meadows were full of all that grows therein, and all the mountain ridges and summits, and every hillside and slope and hollow were crowned with young grass and with a varied produce of the trees just risen from the ground, yet shot up at once into their perfect beauty. And all the beasts that had come into life at God's command were rejoicing, we may suppose, and skipping about, running to and fro in the thickets in herds according to their kind, while every sheltered and shady spot was ringing with the chants of the songbirds. And at sea, we may suppose, the sight to be seen was of the like kind, as it had just settled to quiet and calm in the gathering together of its depths, where havens and harbours spontaneously hollowed out on the coasts made the sea reconciled with the land. And the gentle motion of the waves vied in beauty with the meadows, rippling delicately with light and harmless breezes that skimmed the surface, and all the wealth of creation by land and sea was ready, and none was there to share it. An empty stage, but beautiful. That's his opening chapter. Then we enter, this is the phrase, the first phrase and the dominating phrase, the attribute he gives to humanity is the royal ruler. Not the sinner, the royal ruler. And he says, the next step was that the king should be manifested. That's us the king of creation should be manifested. When the maker of all had prepared beforehand a royal lodging for the future king, he manifests man in the world, this is such a profound sentence, to be the beholder of some of the wonders and the Lord of others. We're beholding and we're making. That by the beauty and majesty of the things he saw, he might trace out the power of the maker, which is beyond speech and language. This is where you, it's a short sentence. You've got to absorb it. That is purpose. What's the purpose? That by the majesty and beauty of what we see, what will happen in our minds, we can trace out the power of the maker that is beyond thought and language. We are finding God in a flower, in a breeze, in, the, in contemplation on the thoughts of our mind. That's why we are here. The nature of man is more precious than all of creation. By the way, all these are quotes, his quotes. Great as it is, 
the this is phenomenal. This is really this is not just is it's very important to his argument. This sentence is extremely important to his argument. Great as it is, the creation was made offhand by the divinity, existing at once by his command. In other words, he just spoke. Bang, bang, bang. Mountains, birds, animals. While counsel precedes the making of man. And he goes on and on about that word counsel. He imagines a planning session in the Godhead. How are we going to make an archetype of ourselves? We can't just say this one. This one's too hard. And he has a page thinking about the planning session of counsel. We were made by counsel so deliberately so carefully in order that we could fulfill the royal rule. Um, I'm tempted to read his passage there, but I think it's better if I just kind of keep moving through and whet your appetite. Otherwise, you will, we'll go into too much detail on anyone. This is, he moves from the royal rule into a really important concept of the nature we have and the royal will. The best artificer, another name for God is the artificer, made our nature fit for the exercise of royalty. That sentence, that very short sentence, is going to structure the next half of his book. If, if I give you a job, I've got to give you the resources to do the job. It's no good to us saying you're going to rule the cosmos. I've got to give you the faculties to rule the cosmos. So he's going to explore what those faculties are. He's now introducing this point. Preparing it at once by superior advantages of the soul and by the very form of the body to be adapted for royalty. We all have souls. Animals don't have souls, according to this definition. Trees don't have souls. We have souls. A more modern philosophical word would be mind. One of Bentley Hart's big arguments is to trash the word mind and get back to the word soul, which is a better word. But we, unfortunately, in the materialist world, do not know every time a thought enters my mind, every time I contemplate something, I'm actually participating in a divine gift from God. There's no way that the mechanisms of the mind can ever explain what goes on when a thought occurs in our heads, which Gregory well understood. So it isn't just the soul, though, it's actually the body. The body gets interesting for Gregory, which we'll find out in a moment. He's going to talk about the body, not just the soul, because we've got them both, and they're both important. He's not a Gnostic. He's not a guy who's going to throw the body away. Why? Because we've got to be adapted for royalty. For the soul immediately shows, this is a very important statement, its exalted character in that it owns no Lord and is self-governed, swayed automatically by its own will. For to whom else does this belong but to a king? I'm going to amplify that last statement because it is, it is very, very um, important and it's a great another great point of departure with Augustine. But what he said is this, if I give you a soul, I've given you authority and self-direction. This is going to get into his nature of evil because you can drive the car whichever way you want it, but you're driving the car. That's what God said to us. 
But for you to be a ruler, I've got to get you to drive the car. So for him, will is a glorious thing. For Augustine, it was a problem. The will was always a problem for Augustine. <clears throat> so human nature, by its likeness to the king of all, the qualities he's going to talk about are not qualities that are given, making us closer to the animals. They're qualities that make us close to God. So close to God, we're gods. Human nature, by its likeness to the king of all, was made, as it were, a living image, partaking with the archetype, that's Jesus, both in rank and nature. You can see why the early church fathers' theology was summed up by somebody who said their theology is summed up, God became man in order that man might become God. And it sounds heretical, but I've told the story before when Jehovah's Witnesses visited me many years ago and I was tired and didn't want to have a long conversation. We used to live out in the country and I watched them walking up the road and thought, what am I going to do? I just don't want to be impolite. So they came up and said, oh, you know, the normal opening to go to church. You know what's wrong with church? I said, yes. Actually, I said, you want to know, I'm a partaker of the divine nature. And they quietly melted away and walked up the hill and I could see him on the road talking about this idiot on the hill who thinks he's God. Well, all I did was quote Hebrews. <laughs> partaker of the divine nature. What are some of these qualities? We are clothed with virtue. He's not mentioning us as sinners. Every human being I have met has the capacity for virtue. I have been the recipient of love and compassion from many people who don't name the name of Christ. It came from somewhere. Ethics is in people. We're clothed with virtue. We're leaning on the bliss of immortality. What a lovely phrase. We mightn't be immortal, but we're leaning on the bliss of it. Everyone we know has got this kind of hope. We're decked with the crown of righteousness. This is as created. So that it is shown to be perfectly like, mankind is shown to be perfectly like the beauty of its archetype in all that belongs to the dignity of royalty. We are designed to be the mirror of God. <clears throat> now, I, I, I wanted to pick out this business about will because he's, uh, we talked about design, by the way, and we talked about uh, design and theology. And um, one of the most important points about design, particularly the design we do in Second Road, is intent which is separate from design. As a matter of fact, intent is, I think, the dominant quality that makes humans successful. We don't teach it in our schools. You know, I, I taught for 12 years at Barker and um, it was a very top school, but if you said, name a module you've got that is there to frame the will, none. We're framing information processing. But once you get out into life, you know, I, I tell you, who makes a business leader? Who makes a champion athlete? It's somebody, is it, is it brains? Is it ability or is it will? Drive, desire. Everyone says, oh, it's probably drive and desire. Pretty ordinary people do great things with that. Um, a friend of mine and I were talking about some of the great failures of Silicon Valley. I won't mention them because they're so famous, but um, he, he knows the people involved. Two of them, Probably the best funded R&D centres in Silicon Valley flopped, eventually. Why? A lack of strategic intent. People were doing stuff and they didn't know why. So it kind of floundered in the end. 
Well, I think it's a very divine principle. And Gregory agrees right back here in 380 AD that the will matters. And as I just said to you, and you've got to, I, won't, I haven't got time to go to it now. If you want me to talk about Augustine next week, I can. For Augustine, the will was a huge problem. The will got him into trouble. The will was corrupted. He agonized over it in the confessions. It was never a good thing to say about the will that I've read in Augustine. Never a good thing to say about, which is how I grew up as an evangelical. Tony, don't have ambitions. The fact that you're super talented, like, oh, you deny that. Just, you know, it's ridiculous. So I'm, I, you don't learn how to set aspirations. You don't learn how to say, why am I here in the world? What he said is, thus there is in us the principle of all excellence, all virtue and wisdom, and every higher thing that we conceive. High, uh, but preeminent among all is the fact that we are free from necessity. That's a very philosophical phrase. We are not atoms being bumped into each other. We make decisions. We decide to be good. We decide to be bad. We decide to give our neighbour a glass of water. We decide not to. Decisions make us God because we alter reality out of our own belief system. Birds don't do that. Rocks don't do that. Earthquakes don't do that. We do that. And he knew that. We are free from necessity. We are not in bondage to any natural power, but have decision in our power as we please. You can see how this is going to go ethical very quickly as well. For virtue is a voluntary thing. Incredibly important phrase. Ethics is always voluntary. It's our decision. It's not inevitable. How we frame our lives. Subject to no dominion. That which is the result of compulsion and forced cannot be virtue. I can't, Paul eventually says, that against such there is no law. I can't say, you know, be joyful, be peaceful. These are kind of acts of voluntarism. So for, for Gregory, the highest point probably of this capacity of uh, Godhead was the will. He finishes with a gorgeous picture of the divine painter. By the way, that's a gorgeous painting by Hans Heisen of his 24-year-old wife. If you ever go to Adelaide, up into the Harndorf Territory in the Adelaide Hills, the best thing you can do is go to Hans Heisen's house and um, his painting studio. Anyone else been there? It's fabulous, isn't it? Oh, fabulous. It's unbelievable. There's nothing like it in Australia. That painting may be worth like half a million dollars just hanging on the wall. Um, it's gorgeous. He just loved it to death. Anyway, listen to this for God as the painter. As, as painters transfer human forms to their pictures by means of colours, so our maker, also painting our portrait to resemble his own beauty by the addition of virtues, as it were, with colours, shows in us his own sovereignty. The likeness of the image is perfectly preserved. The so, so he's saying we, God painted a picture and we're the picture. And the colours he used were all the attributes that he had. For instance, the Godhead is mind and word. The Godhead is mind and word. Humanity is not far removed from these. Again, God is love and the fount of love and the fashion of our nature has made this our feature too. We love one another. We know what love is. The deity beholds all things. You too have the power of apprehension of things. So he sees that we are mirroring the colours God has painted us with, colours from his own character. I think, you know, one of the burdens we've all got is that we've lost sight of all this in darkness. We're a walking miracle and we just don't see it as we should.
Um, this helps a lot. Now the divine qualities, he's got several chapters on this. I'll just give you a, a, a touch of it. Now he decides to go into some detail. He painted the picture. Now he's going to go into some detail. This is his, well, my schematic of his picture of life. Um, I think it was probably traditional in the day, but I think it's quite powerful. There's a foundation of inanimate matter, rocks and stuff. Then the first type of life is vegetation, which he calls growth. I mean, a, a leaf is living. Photosynthesis is going on, it's growing. Rocks aren't growing. Then the next level of life would be animals who have senses. They smell, they taste, uh, they hear like we do. It's a higher life form. And the highest form of life is mind, which is the rational mind, which is what we have on top of all. Now we have all those things. We have, we're at the top of the tier. Um, so that's his picture of, which he develops in one chapter, of, of, of us. And um, what he then says is, there's a great chapter nine on the music of language. The music of language, his whole metaphor for language is, is music. And the body and the vocal cords are like the structure of a lyre. And the thought passes across the lyre like wind and a plectrum. And the language that comes out is a song. Does that make sense? He said, the mind is incorporeal. Its grace would have been incommunicable. If, if we had a mind and no body, we couldn't communicate anything. So the human mind being a discoverer of all sorts of conceptions might make known its hidden thoughts by means of the sound produced upon the vocal cords. So there's a beautiful image of language, which is today widely recognized as one of the unique features of, of humanity. But we need the body in order to do that. A phenomenal breathtaking chapter is chapter 10, the city of the mind. Now there he anticipates one of the great imponderable qualities of the human mind, which is called the unifying nature of consciousness. And he imagines our mind as being a vast city with lots of gates. And in each gate is a sense. And senses are crowding in through the gates. But our mind unifies them all. He gives a simple example. You go home, you have a meal tonight. You're, you're tasting. You're smelling, you're looking, but your mind does not compartmentalize, oh, here's the taste thing. Your mind just sees one thing, which is I'm enjoying the meal. Where does this unity come from? Where does this unity come from? That's what he asks. Our mind is performing, and by the way, this is profound uh, in anyone who thinks about the mind today. Our mind is absolutely unifying everything. I solved a little problem for myself with this the other day by the way, um, because we, if we look at ourselves, we can solve problems we give to God. Like one of the problems I had was, like, God, how are you going to get a personal relationship with all these billions of people? Does anyone ever think about that? Like, I'll be lost in the crowd. You know, I mean, it's kind of like, it's an imponderable that, that billions of people and yet a personal, intimate relationship. And, and then I thought, hang on, Tony, you do that all the time. You've got millions of inputs in your mind. You just synthesize them all into one quite easily. That's your power of synthesis and the unifying power of your mind. God's just bigger than you and he can do it with billions of people. But it's the same faculty. But of course. The unifying power of the mind is an utter mystery that no cognitive science has got a clue of going close to. It's the soul. It's a mystery. 
That's the city of the mind. By the way, he does that in about two pages. He just keeps on rolling these out one after another. So I said the guy was slightly profound. Um, um, he finishes on the divine qualities with this phenomenal chapter that says, well, at the end of the day, we're not going to understand them because can you understand your mind? Well, how can you understand the mind of God? It's a mystery. And there's a gorgeous phrase there that um, who's known the mind of the Lord? He quotes that. Well, who knows his own mind? I don't know my own mind. How am I going to know God's mind? It's going to be a mystery at the end, despite all I've said. He said, it's, it's going to be a mystery. And the very fact that it, I can't understand my own mind should say, oh, therefore, that proves I can't understand God. And the incomprehensibility of God now becomes a quality I can admire him for because I'm incomprehensible too. Thus far, this is a very positive picture. Now the question comes, and it is a, I suppose it's a criticism of a lot of people who believe in cosmic redemption or universal salvation, what are you going to call it? What about evil? What about sin? You just, all you've got is optimism. And part of it where I came to think about this was that obviously in gospel conversations and in my own mind for a long, long time, I've been moving to this Genesis 1 and 2 made in the image of God, which is very positive. When do we say, oh yeah, but I've got something else to tell you too, which is you're a sinner going to hell. Like somehow or other you've got to reconcile the positive and, and the evil. Um, and in our particular case, I'm going back to it. Now he does, I think, a great job of it. So he has a, um, a huge moral vision, which I summarise as beauty at risk. His moral vision is not original sin and contamination. It is not a whole lot of laws we can't keep. It's everything I've just said, we could mar the beauty of this. Everything I've just said about how powerful we are could be used for evil as well as for good. That's why I said for him, morality is direction, not infection. Does that make sense? So, and this is really useful. I find, I don't actually, as I've said before, I haven't found the concept of, the traditional evangelical concept of sin at all useful for so many years. It's sin spotting, you know. Oh dear, I've seen people in church do it. It's just pathetic, you know. It's introspection, pathological, unscriptural. Was that a sin? Was that not a sin? But this is useful for me every day of my life, this model. <laughs> I love it. So obviously he didn't do the model, I did the model. And this is the model. We're in the middle. At the top is the divine mind. The divine mind is God, with all the qualities and all the purity. Down the bottom is the world of matter, the earthly stuff. We're the bridge. We've got both. Like, you know, I got matter, I got the qualities that animals have, I got the qualities that trees have, I got the quality that rocks have got, but I've also got the soul. So I'm the bridge. Now the question is purely which way do the arrows go? Which way do the arrows go? Down from God or up from matter? And there he's got modern materialism. Do I take my definition of who I am from senses, from matter, from impulses, or do I take them from God? And he said, if you go back up from matter, it, 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 it is disproportionate and distorted. You go down from God and you become an agent of blessing and you change the world. Does that make sense? Now, he um, has got a long, beautiful sentence about that. Since the most beautiful and supreme good of all is the divinity itself, we say that the mind 
as being in the image of the most beautiful, itself remains in beauty and goodness so long as it partakes in its likeness to the archetype. But if it were at all to depart from this, it is deprived of that beauty which it had. So it's the loss of beauty. Thus, so long as one keeps in touch with the other, the communication of the true beauty extends proportionately throughout the whole series, beautifying it. Lovely phrase of this proportional amplification of beauty if we keep looking in the right direction. When there is any interruption of this connection, when the superior follows the inferior, then is displayed the misshapen character of matter. He sees matter is actually brutish, without form, without beauty, without structure. And we get governed by sensate things. We get governed by brute beasts. We get governed by bestiality. It's got no form. It's got no structure. It's got no beauty. And, the, and we get a backflow, like a regurgitation, back up against God from the world of brute matter. That's his sense of evil. Um, for the mind, setting the idea of good like a mirror behind it back, to, what happens when somebody stops looking at God and goes the other way? He says, it's like putting a mirror behind my back. I can't see anymore. And I turn off the rays, the sunlight rays of the effulgence of good. I turn myself into darkness and receives in itself the impress of the shapelessness of matter. So he has an extremely powerful moral vision. So he's taking remorse, uh, relentlessly the image of God and he's following it through now into morality. Does that make sense? He's not actually ignoring it at all. From here, he goes into the fall. Now, his, his doctrine of the fall is quite, I, I find, um, thought-provoking. Two trees. He sees the tree of life as the dominant tree. In fact, infusing with its qualities every other tree in the garden. God's desire is the tree of life would animate every tree and every good thing. Opposed to that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The whole point, he has a very nuanced picture which, of good and evil. The whole point, it's the tree mixes good and evil. And evil dresses itself up as good. So I have to exercise discernment, which strikes me as being what life is like, because there's no, you know, Decisions, are, it's all this grey area of decisions where I have to exercise discernment. But he says that is the nature of the tree and the good and evil um, which we've eaten and we've lost the tree of life. So his picture of evil is a picture of poor choices um, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He then moves on, and now I'm moving uh, aware of the time. Um, how are we going so far? Is this keeping up with this one? Um, he's got to keep pushing through with this because it's so profound and once I've done this you can have a look at it yourself and again we'll stick these up on the website this, is, this picture is enormously important it's my picture not his but his idea of the superabundance of good and the inevitability of the resurrection he actually says the resurrection was inevitable now he also has the best scriptural analysis of resurrection accounts in the Gospels I've ever read. When he gets into the text, he's brilliant. It's not like he's just a philosopher. But he begins here and says, 
as a consequence of all these things, the resurrection had to happen. By the way, it wasn't just the resurrection that had to happen. According to Irenaeus, the incarnation had to happen. The whole problem with evangelical theology is the incarnation was like a vehicle to, to rescue us, like a plan B. Once you have this model, the incarnation was absolutely inevitable. The God-man would have to reveal himself. It's just the natural follow-on from being God-imaging himself in creation. What you can see, this is the metaphor he uses. The sun on the left, by the way, they seem to have this kind of flat earth thing. This is 380. He got a view of the solar system. That's what, this was his stuff. I won't read it all out, but just here's the sun which he calls infinite goodness. So its rays go 360 degrees, illuminating the universe with light. The rays hit the earth and there's darkness on the other side of the earth. Does that make sense? Right? But all around is light. Well, that darkness is evil and that is infinite goodness and light. Now, this is really an, another important distinction with Augustine. He believed in the superabundance of the good because the good is God who has no equals and I cannot equalise good and evil. I cannot equalise light and darkness. So what he says is, so I think we ought to understand this uh, about ourselves that on passing the limit of wickedness, we shall again have our conversation in light as the nature of the good when compared with the measure of wickedness is incalculably superabundant. He had a picture of humanity, by the way, I won't go into this, but his view of humanity is as the universal race of humanity. We will, evil's limited, it'll run out of gas, we'll get to the end of it, and then we flick over into light. That's his picture, or one of his metaphors. And the end of that will be what he called world reformation. Now, Quite a breathtaking cosmological picture, isn't it? But um, the superabundance of the good is obvious. It's, it's quite obvious that, I mean, he, he doesn't quote lots of verses, but it's pretty easy to quote lots of verses about that. So resurrection now becomes the restoration of paradise. And he sees the end of all things, which now we're moving on to at the end of the talk, as being the inevitable uh, restoration of the tree of life. Paradise therefore will be restored and that tree will be restored which is in truth the tree of life. There will be restored the grace of the image and the dignity of rule. And then he says that if we're to imagine what this dignity of rule will be like in the future, it does not seem to me that our hope is for those things which are now subjected to us of the necessary uses of life. It's not like we will rule waves we might. It's not like we will even rule disease. We might. He said, in fact, the rule will be for another kingdom a of a, a description of which belongs to unspeakable mysteries. We'll rule everything we can imagine ruling like Superman. You know, every, every kind of superhero movie kind of gets a picture of ruling this cosmos. We will rule unspeakable mysteries beyond, is what he says. Beyond that. Stunningly, he then moves on to the fact that the future of humanity will stop time. So he says that God, when he created us, 
had this picture of the full complement of humanity, 683 billion souls or whatever, he knew. And when that's full, the image of God is full, he imagines. Um, and time then should cease together with its completion and then should take place the restitution of all things and with the world reformation, humanity also should be changed from the corruptible and earthly to the impassable and eternal. I suppose he's speculating, but I, I just love the speculation that we are more important than time and that God's interest is... Most people tend to think of eschatology as, as time is like a time. When will this happen? When will that happen? Do I fit in here? What fits in next? No, no, we're more important than time. When God's finished with us, time stops. And with the logic of his argument, you can see how relentlessly you could get to that position. God is far more interested in us than in time. So with that, and by the way, he's got a very good, um, some of this is, is like it was written yesterday. I'll read this little passage out um, because I found it so helpful. Um, where he, he, you know, how many people have sort of here thought like 2,000 years, been a long time, um, where are we all fitting in, hurry up? Has anyone had those kind of thoughts? So he's got this great chapter after all this, to those who say, if the resurrection is so good, how is it that it hasn't happened yet? That's his chapter heading. So uh, he's right there with us all. Um, his answer's fantastic at the end of it all. He's just got this great bit. And I'll read it out because I think it's really, this is his moral vision. Um, Neither then should we be troubled at the brief delay of what we hope for, but we should give diligence that we may not cast, be cast out from the object of our hopes. And he has the image of a farmer. For just as though if one were to tell some inexperienced person beforehand, the gathering of the crops will take place, bang, in that season or summer, and the stores will be filled and the table abundantly supplied with food at the time of plenty. So tell a farmer, your crop in six months' time is going to be full. Imagine banquets, imagine feasts. That's what's going to happen. It would be a foolish man who, having heard that, would seek, who should seek to hurry on the coming of the foretime when he ought to be sowing. So if, if, if the guy sat down, the farmer sat down and think, how can I make it happen every day? How can I make it happen? <coughs> they said, get out and sow the seeds. Get out and till the soil. So he said, that's what we've got to do. Don't worry about when. Start doing the work. Because I told you there's going to be a harvest. So start sowing. Start building it. That was a, I just love that passage. So um, the future of humanity finishes time. And then he says, he finishes with these last few slides, which I'll finish with, obviously. Um, he's got a, quite a breathtaking chapter where he believes that resurrection is the final resolution of the mind-matter debate, when the mind of God dominates the world. I won't go into that, but he's, um, his reasoning there is stuff that Ron will get onto, and it's almost like he had just studied the new physics and the Heisenberg uncertainty principle in 380 AD. We name trees, we create trees. There's a tree... But the tree doesn't have colour. Colour's an attribute I give it. It's not intrinsic to a tree. My mind has created colour. So therefore I'm creating nature. Now, of course, the new physics says that's actually what's happening. That's the anthropic principle, but he's, he's kind of got it in 380 AD. So he says, well, all that's going to happen in the resurrection, that's just going to get complete. So he introduces that for a chapter, but he says, look, that's not really my, the bulk of my belief 
And then he has this tremendous chapter on resurrection where he goes through every account where Jesus raised someone from the dead in the Gospels. And what he says is every one of them is a prelude to the general resurrection, to his resurrection. And, 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 and br- with a brilliant analysis, he talks about the expanding scope of each of those miracles. How they started smaller and they got bigger and they got bigger and they got bigger. And I'll read you this incredibly touching bit on the widow of Nain. When I said he was such a tremendous scholar um, and so empathic, he talks about the widow of Nain. Just read it to you. This, this is, and this is now one of the ones that's getting closer to his resurrection. The scripture tells of a city called Nain in Judea. A widow there had only uh, an only child. No longer a child in the sense of being among boys, but already passing from childhood to man's estate, the narrative calls him a young man. The story conveys much in a few words. The very recital is a mere lamentation, a real lamentation. The dead man's mother, it says, was a widow. Do you see the weight of her misfortune? How the text briefly sets out the tragedy of her suffering? For what does the phrase mean? It means that she had no more hope of burying sons to cure the loss she had just sustained in him who had departed. For the woman was a widow. She had not in her power to look to anyone else instead of him, to him who had gone. He was her only child. And how great a grief is here expressed, anyone may easily see who's not an utter stranger to natural feeling. Him alone, the mother had known in travail. Him alone, she had nursed at her breast. Him alone had made her table cheerful. He alone was the cause of brightness in her home, in play, at work, in learning, in gaiety, at processions, at sports, at gatherings of youth. He alone was all that is sweet and precious in a mother's eyes. Now at the age of marriage, he was the stock of her race, the shoot of its succession, the staff of her old age. Moreover, even the additional detail of his time of life is another lament. For he who speaks of him as a young man tells of the flower of his faded beauty, speaks of him as just covering his face with down, not yet with a full thick beard, but still bright with the beauty of his cheeks. What then, think you, were his mother's sorrows for him? How would her heart be consumed as it was aflame? Nor does the narrative pass this by for Jesus. When he saw her, it says, had compassion. He just puts you right there. And he builds up with these, every miracle is a prelude of the restitution of all things. It's a sign. And the last one is this. He says, For it behoved him, when he had accustomed men to the miracle of resurrection in other bodies, Lazarus and co., to confirm his word in his own humanity. You saw the thing proclaimed working in others. Do you seek for those who have come to death by wounds and bloodshed? He hadn't raised anyone from the dead whose body had been massacred at war. Okay, they're going to massacre my body. Behold him whose side was transfixed by a spear. And he goes on as to how deep that wound must have been. And the physical sufferings of crucifixion. If he then has been raised, well may we utter the apostles' exclamation, how say some of you that there is no resurrection of the dead? You shall send your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth, At which time also he says that the Lord rejoices in his works, sinners having perished from the earth. For how shall anyone be called by the name of sin when sin itself exists no longer? So that's his 
climactic picture of the resurrection of Jesus, which then institutes the resurrection of all things. So that's the passage through the reasoning of the making of man. I've tried to give you the highlights, beginning with let's make a royal ruler in our own image. And um, he clings onto that and develops that all the way through to the resurrection and the final restitution of, of royal rule. His most famous passage, which I'll finish with, is actually from his other book, which is on the soul and the resurrection. And he has this picture which he builds from the Psalms of the temple of God and all the nations of the earth flowing into the temple of God at the end. Of it. He doesn't know how it's going to happen, but he has this picture. And of course, he believes, as I do, that we are the first fruits. We're first cab off the rank. We're heralds of this new creation. Those who are now outside because of evil will eventually come inside the sanctuary of divine blessedness. There's his universal salvation statement. The apostle says this more plainly, expounding the agreement of the universe, the agreement of the universe in the good, to him every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, so this festival is the confession and knowledge of the, of the one who is true. So he sees all of humanity coming into this festival. By the way, Psalm 118 is what he's building this on. Uh, which is a very, very prophetic messianic psalm. It's one which is the, uh, the stone the builders has rejected has become the head of the cornerstone is from that psalm. He has one goal. God has one goal. When the whole fullness of our nature has been perfected in each man, some straight away in this life purified from evil, others healed hereafter. So he definitely, he believes in a healing after death or, you know, purgatory, you'd say, uh, through fire for the appropriate length of time and others ignorant of the experience equally of good and evil in this life. Here he's talking about babies. He's talking about people who die without knowing about it. All these people, God intends to set before everyone the participation of the good things in him, which scripture says, eye has not seen nor ear heard nor thought attained. And um, with that picture, which is from the, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful two-page picture of the whole of... He's really unpacking the book of Revelation when it says all the nations of the earth will stream into the new Jerusalem. He finishes his picture of the image of God. So that's my attempt to take you on a fly through of Gregory of Nyssa's thinking um, with the view of fleshing out this huge apocalyptic vision he had. Obviously, you can listen to this. From, I've been studying it for quite a while. It takes time to kind of absorb. No matter which position you come to, this is grand stuff. You know, uh, this is phenomenal. Definitely the, the most highly advanced work through I've ever seen of the plans of God from creation to the end of the world. Um, and uh, I hope it was uh, useful to you. So, ne so ne next time I can, you know, I've got two, two sort of thoughts in mind. One was to sort of take that and then compare it with Augustine as to how these two things came to be, which I could do. Um, it'd be better to do that in one talk rather than try and cram it in. And then the final thing I want to talk about is the kind of so what's. There's a lot of kind of so what's. If you did believe in cosmic redemption, there's a lot of so what's around. Well, what about evangelism? What about this? What about that? What about the church? All sorts of stuff, which I think is uh, valuable and I've thought quite a bit about. So... Um, 
What, uh, what's the interest, uh, just out of interest, if I get a show of it, would you prefer I just skip August and leave him, or people intrigued to find out how the battle lines were, in, of ideas were drawn between the two guys? Would you? It does. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's good. Oh, well, I'm quite happy to do that, and I'd, I'd like to do that because. Um, it's interesting as you reflect on Augustine and and uh, <coughs> um, uh, Gregory there. You know the impact that their family lives yes. had on the positions that they rode mm. and the directions that they went. Augustine and his mother. Yeah. yeah and the whole family yeah. context that you put, and uh, which led, of course, to all these confessions. And, you know, That's right. It's very interesting. It's, you know, it's just, it's, it's, I was going to actually, to be honest with you, I didn't do it, but I was going to preface this with a picture of my mother, because... Yeah. I walked, I walked into my study a week ago and just was confronted by a picture of her when she was 23 before she'd met Christ and uh, it was like she spoke to me because uh, what happened was that my mother was converted and led me to the Lord when I was very young, five, and she just had this incredible picture of the love of Christ for her, like her bridegroom, which sustained her, but she couldn't articulate it. And so she, when I, when it, when my, as I became a Christian and I, I had aptitude, she, she prayed for me every day of my, of her, her life and my life coinciding, let's say that was 60 or 70 years, that I would be able to articulate the wonders of the grace of God. Um, and I just saw that picture and I said, you know, go and talk about the grace of God. Um, but it is, it is very interesting, the role of women behind all these different men. But, but uh, uh, Gregory was heaven. This book on the soul and the resurrection is actually, nobody knows who wrote it because it's actually a dialogue between him and Macrina. It's very, very touching because it begins with um, he's in agony because his brother has just died. And it's very, very personal, grief-stricken. And he goes to her for comfort and then she's emaciated because she's got cancer. But the book is her teaching him, him asking the doubtless questions about the resurrection and she answering. So nobody knows whether that's made up or not. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah. I'm just wondering if you'd consider having a session where people could um, message in uh, <coughs> questions, yeah, be good. Bible verses that you, you might... Um, what does this mean? Mm. Present, um, ...where theologies of universalism versus different um, perspectives on judgment, how, yeah. they, how they come in, that'd be good. I reckon that'd be a good idea if, if we could do it. I'll tell you, in other words, just have like a big question-answer discussion, because I haven't got all the answers. Maybe to invite people to send stuff in so that yeah. you can format them all into... Yeah, I, I'd be quite... Would that be useful to do? Or a debate. It's, well, it's not yeah. so much a debate. The whole problem is that what I've tried to do is set up... What doesn't work is this kind of Bible verse tennis thing, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, I've tried to build a framework, and, and but then, then there's a question about, well, what about this verse, this verse, this verse? And I think, actually... Uh, that would be a very good... I want to do some of that because I've thought about this quite a lot. I've thought a lot about, well, what does this say for evangelism? Mm. You know, I've got to say it's extremely positive. 
just my own experience. I mean, one of the things I'm going to talk about is my own experience, and I've led a fair number of people to Christ, is generally, it, I've never ever told them their sinners going to hell, ever. I mean, the one, I suppose the most, there are several sort of conversions that have meant a lot to me and the people, but one of them was my friend Tony at school, Tony Morgan, and Tony's, so this is when we were 14, it's like 50 years ago, and Tony's just really had an epic Christian life, and he was, I was convinced he wasn't born again. He didn't have the Holy Spirit. And I was trying to batter him with that message. I think he used to go along to Crusaders here and there. And I know what happened, but I do, I know how it happened, but I know what happened was in my mind, like the Holy Spirit said, just welcome him as a brother. Just don't, you get that out of your mind. So I just began to, rather than the adversarial thing, I just began to, pursue, and, I, and I just was, we're going home in the train one day. I said, oh, I love Jesus so much. I'd give my right arm for him. And I used to say those sort of things. And I didn't know, but that just went, absolutely pierced his heart and he went home that night and he said I could never say that about Jesus and he prayed for two or three hours until he could say that about Jesus and that was his conversion but as far as I was concerned it was like oh, it's all news to me I mean I'd actually accepted him and was more hey this is great than us and them so my personal experience is it actually equips you for evangelism but that's a big that's really worthwhile discussing that one I think it's because other people might have different views on that yeah. And then what's the role of the church? What's the role of... It's all very interesting. And, and um, there's no question, though, that this sort of... I think this topic... One of the YouTube videos I was looking at was a, was a Yale professor of philosophy who is a Christian, who's quite a universalist, and, and a YouTube... And they just, this, in this particular radio clip, say this will, they predict will become in the next 10, 20 years a sort of the big topic in we might just be a bit of but I, I, the way I you know what I firmly believe is we do see through a glass darkly we're trying to frame things that are you know if you were to press me to what I really believe I think the scripture is really open about it likelihood of this being true in some way shape or form I think is quite there but when I read what the scripture says in practice every single version of it that I've seen like the sermons and the Acts of the Apostles book of Hebrews it's all like treat God really seriously because who you know don't, don't run the risk which I think we can keep saying to people. But, but yeah, it is, it is pretty uh, um, top of the stuff. Yeah. What, yeah. What you said tonight, shared tonight, is a very interesting picture. I'm just wondering whether when you start the next time with the blessing, whether we're going to get exposed. <laughs> I see. Well, look, that's a good question. Um, I don't think so because I think... I think, look, to be fair, and I'm a great, anyone who's read, I mean, has anyone here read much Augustine? A few, a little bit, yeah. Um, the trouble with, I think Bentley Hart's wrong, he lived too long and wrote too much. Um, on Christian Doctrine is fabulous. You know, I've read quite a bit of that, and it's a fabulous, uh, The Confessions has got some of the most epic chapters you know, I could ever read, but it's got some of the worst as well. Um, and the city of God, it was at the end of his life. So the, the, this particular woman I mentioned, the Italian lady, Remilieri, Dr. Remilieri, essentially, the trouble with Augustine is he, you know, look, well, take me as an example. If anyone in the future, oh, I won't become famous, but should I become famous, they could find me at 20 preaching hellfire and brimstone. They find me now preaching, you know, and they say, well, hang on, there's one Tony Goldsby Smith. Well, there isn't. And th that was very much like Augustine. He changed his mind. 
Um, this lady says that he actually was heavily influenced by Origen, didn't know it was Origen that was influencing him, and as a younger man was much more open-minded. Origen had a few ideas and they kind of, by the time he got to write The City of God, there was this other debate going on and he was a bit older and crankier. He was also responding to the fall of Rome. He was responding to the fall of Rome, very much so. Total, exactly. It's a civilization disaster. It's a civilization disaster, and that's how he writes the first third. They blame the Christians for it. Yeah, and they blame the Christians for it, exactly. This is the apologia against that accusation against the Christians. Correct. A totally different context, and so. Mm. That's what I was going to ask. What, given that, what was, 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 was Augustine one aware of? No, I don't think he was aware of uh, that. I can work out. Well, he. Yeah. Although they were, they were almost contemporaries, but they're perhaps one generation apart. And so what was the, what was the milieu that he was writing in? Then? Do you know small, yeah, Cappadocia was a small outposty type of area. Um, didn't have the networks to Rome and became really the offspring of what became the, more the Eastern Orthodox Church. Yeah, but they were networked in Constantinople. They were networked in Constantinople, yeah. So, so uh, yeah. The, the, the question is to, why Augustine kind of his views became the incumbent ones and why Gregory didn't have more influence. It's, it's, it's interesting. It kind of hardened up about 150 years after, 200 years after this as far as I can work out. But I think the, the interesting thing about Augustine, Gordon, is that I think it's quite revealing because we know clearly where he gets to. He's very clear on the heaven, hell, eternal torment thing. But it's actually quite illuminating to work back his logic it's, it's pretty bad logic, but it's pretty clear to me to identify it. So it's, it's, and it's easy now to contrast it. Hmm? Can you work back that logic? Yeah, yeah easily. I mean, I've, I've given you one of them, which was he was, for a lot of reasons for, in his confessions, he was enormously, he wasn't misanthropic, but he wasn't far from it in his bad days, and he couldn't handle the idea of the will. The will was a monster that could, you know, was tainted. And insofar as he talks about the will, it's all philosophical. You know, my will versus God's will. He, and it's a problem. And how can I have a, how can the will be good? Because I'm totally evil. So contrast that with what he said about the will. It's actually the divine steering wheel. We've got to shape creation. So they're very contrasting views. Sorry? Romans 7 is another good one that we could talk about that. I think people misread Romans 7. I think people misread, well, it's an arrogant thing to say, but I think Romans 7 is theoretical. To, to prove the law was never, could never do us good. Yeah. Can I ask one more question? Yeah, yeah, sure. He doesn't quite say that. Um, by the way, that, that's mistranslated. That time shall be no more is mistranslated out of interest, but leave that aside. I mean, that's what Bentley Hart, he's, he's right. I mean, it's a, it should be translated another way. So. I was just wondering on. He talks a lot about the, what you've just talked about. I didn't go into it. So what he talks a lot about, he gets really nitty gritty. Um, What happens to 
His view, I mean, look, the, the, headlines, the headlines of his view on continuity and discontinuity, he doesn't approach it. I don't, it's, it's interesting to ask the question, was this universal salvation thing a big debate or not? You know, I don't think it was, I don't think it was, it raised its head as a big debate in their world of primary concerns. I think he just got there and he assumed it. What both Augustine and Gregory were apologists, so a lot of their antagonists were sceptics um, of the resurrection. So where he does talk for several chapters is, is he gets into the nitty-gritty of, well, when you die and your body gets eaten by animals and regurgitated by fishes and it's all over the shop, and where's your soul, where's your body, and how do they all come back together again? He's into that level of discussion. <laughs> Yeah, but, but he, he, he's, uh, he's a, I mean, he, like Augustine, they're both trained in rhetoric, they're both brilliant, so they could beautifully develop arguments. He does what a good rhetorician does, which he takes it as far as he can, and he says, yeah, but, end of the day, we're not going to fully understand it. But he's, he's, prior to that, he makes really powerful points about, you know, argues a lot by analogy, you know, the, the, he gives examples from nature of the unifying, reconstituting power we see in nature, and why can't this happen with this... He doesn't say that I can, he uses a lot of analogy to discuss those things. Um, what I just, I just found, you know, no matter where you come from, it, it, I just, you know, this Hebrews 11 where Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. It, you know, the universal salvation thing, a, a, a phrase I don't like because it's, it's an individualistic phrase. There's no question about cosmic redemption and the renewal of all things. What I've noticed is that there's definitely been a very good movement in the, in the church away from heaven, the heresy of heaven, to the renewal of heaven and earth. That's been good. But I don't think it's gone far enough. Well, if that's the case, what does this look like? And I think that he's taken it further than anyone that, that I've read. And what's so unusual is he's connected it from Genesis all the way through. And if you go back to what Bentley Hart says, who just adores Gregory, in my beginning is my end. So you can't actually ask about all these questions about, you know, where we go and where the souls are. You've got to go back to Genesis 1 and say, what was the beginning? What's the purpose of God? Who's God? And the little phrase that Gregory doesn't make a lot of, but Bentley Hart does, although to his Bentley Hart, Gregory talks a fair amount about it, is uh, it's a moral vision on God himself. So, so what Bentley Hart said is God's got problems with creation. And he said it might be impious to say at the end God will also judge himself but actually he will reveal himself which is the same thing. You know, why is there cancer in kids? Why are there tsunamis? Why is there this? If you did create us, why did you allow... All these big questions which, as far as Bentley Hart's concerned, they're good questions without easy answers and we'll only know at the end but God will have to judge himself. He'll have to reveal himself. He's begun to do it in the God-man of Jesus. I'm a dying God. But uh, that's what he means by that little phrase of the moral vision. Because once, what I know, you know, um, again, this is where, this is such, so exciting because I can solve a lot of God's problems by thinking about my problems. Because I'm a mini God. And I know that any enterprise you do in life, you're going to get into trouble with it. You want to start a company, as I've done, with a grand vision, we'll get used to the fact you're going to have bad days. 
people are going to blame you. I, did anyone see the phenomenal interview with um, James Comey that Lee Sales did on, you know, the why did you, two weeks before the election, why did you release the tapes? And I just thought, whether the man's a believer, I just seemed to be a very ethical, wonderful human being. He said, I wish there was another door called a good choice. I didn't have a good choice. I had a bad choice and a very bad choice, a catastrophic choice. I had to choose between bad and catastrophic. I didn't have good. And he said, I wish I did have good, but I didn't. So I chose bad over catastrophic. And like, what do you do? So once you start to get involved with anyone, you know, you get a relationship. That's what Victory, uh, Joseph Conrad's book's about. The minute you fall in love with someone, you're in trouble. <laughs> like, you know, the only safe thing in life is to alienate yourself. Go live on an island and no relationships and I control everything. Well, that's kind of what God decided not to do. He got involved and now he's got all sorts of problems. Everyone blames him. What the hell did you do? People blame me and the company. Why did you make that decision? Well, I can't tell you because I can't tell you. I, I, trust me. I don't want to trust you. I mean, why did you sack that person? They're a good person. Oh, sorry, I can't. It's actually unethical for me to tell you why I say you know, you know what I mean? The minute you initiate something, you're in trouble. So I know what that's like. I presume God's just got a bigger problem on his hands. <laughs> it goes back to the restoration of all things, though, you see. It does. Because you don't know until... You don't know. And, and in a sense, I know, as, a, as a kind of when I'm making these decisions, we do with our kids. Trust me, you don't like my decision now. You don't understand it now. You will one day. How many of us have said that? You know, really, that's what he's... Yeah, and, and what he's saying is that in miniature, we are gods. We have a mind. My dog, my cat doesn't think these things through, but I do. And I'm close to God. So therefore, I can understand, make some sense out of it, you know. It's very illuminating. Yes, Andrew. Um, Tony, I'd really like to uh, uh, explore, hear some more sort of thoughts around, <laughs> uh, uh, and you skip over the judgment side, but seeing exactly what it is, what it means by order, you can see what it means by direction. Sure. Uh, and, and judgment is gone. And then the implications for the gospel message. <coughs> and at least touch on that evangelism a, a bit, right? How that how that changes, if it changes the gospel message. Yeah. What do we what do we say from? Yep. At least uh, a good idea. And Here. Yeah, yeah, you, you touched on it, but you hinted at it a little bit more in the slides earlier. Mm. But just, I just really want to understand that sort of, and I don't think you'll do that with your government. Uh, no, no, I think the judgment one's really interesting. I'm quite happy to do it. I would say, look, um, Paul blessed me by that book by George MacDonald. I think the problem is I bought the book by his real name, which is, what's his real name? Robin Parry, yeah. So, um, even it's called, what is it called? What's his book called? The Evangelical Universalist, Evangelical Universalist by George MacDonald. That's a pseudonym um, because he was a kind of what, a, a editor in Paterno, a, a Christian publishing house, Evangelical Christian publishing house who privately came to the view of universal salvation. So he wrote a book. Didn't, he did it incognito. Well, 
He said he didn't want to drag the reputation of his publishing house in, so he did come out <laughs> eventually. But so he wrote under Gregory McDonald, Gregory from Gregory of Nyssa, and McDonald was a George McDonald, who was a, so two people who were universalists. That actually that book does a far better job than me of covering all those bases, <laughs> nitty gritty bases, um, like you know verses and all sorts of stuff. I'm, I'm tending to take the panoramic picture, which I probably do a better job than he does at, but, it, but, but as for covering the bases, history of the debate, it, which gets into some of those questions, um, I definitely recommend that one. But the Evangelical Universalist. The Evangelical, yeah, it's a good book. It's very, he's quite, his YouTube, it's worthwhile, you could, he's on YouTube. Yeah, very balanced sort of, it's what I think, I think the whole point is, my point is to get this off the heresy table onto the inquiry table. And, and you know, the, most of the people, including Gregory, were known as very gentle. Uh, Augustine was much more polemical. You wouldn't want to be an enemy of Augustine. Um, and, and, and Robin, whatever his, Perry is like that in the city's YouTube clips? Yeah, he looks like a, a suburban He looks like a suburban accountant. He talks quietly and just like, well, we've got to think about this. And, and he says sort of what I do. Look, I'm 80% certain this is true. I'm not saying in the same category as Jesus rose from the dead, but I'm sort of veering there and we need to consider it. And so, um, but definitely I'd like to talk about the judgment. I, I've, I've found it, yeah, there's a kind of, a, this is like pulling threads. Um, in a funny way, the open and shutness of the evangelical gospel tends to almost devalue the whole moral compasses of life because I'm, I'm either going to heaven or going to hell. So the sort of how do I live is sort of inconsequential. I mean, it's not meant to be, but it's how it sort of turns out. I mean, the rewards comes in, but I hardly ever hear anyone. Rewards, we're not, we're not meant to like, want rewards anyway, so that'd be egotistical. So it's like being, hoping I'll be a prefect when I'm at school or something, like be a prefect in heaven. So no one thinks about rewards much either. So there's a minimization of what clearly to me, and this is when I talk about Matthew 25, which is the most famous hell passage, you know, the sheep and goats. That is clearly, mainly a moral message to the rulers of the earth. And, it's, and, and, and the stunning moral vision of that is totally eclipsed by the last verse, which is you know, sheep go to eternal hell and... Go, whatever it is, go to eternal life. And that, it's, I've heard that preached even by good preachers and it's like there's nothing else except that verse. And it's clearly a bit of a postscript at the end, which I think is more exhortational than doctrinal. The clear thing is live a good life. And the, the, the stunning thing in that whole moral vision, which everybody misses, is that Lord says, the Lord of the King says, they all say the same thing. Well, I never gave a cup of water to you. Sorry, when you gave it to that child, you gave it to me. And just think about it. He's saying, if you take Gregory, every human being on the planet view like they're Jesus. How you talk to them, how you love them. You know, that's a huge moral vision that I personally find fabulous. And I find the fact that it's sobering fabulous. I, I find it useful to evaluate my life to say, hmm, oh, I didn't really treat that person like they were the image of God, did I? And it's very useful and it doesn't make me guilty. It's sort of very helpful. So I think the whole judgment morality thing, 
gets a lot of legs out of this, ironically, because a lot of people think if, if you take universal salvation, it's like free ticket, don't worry. Whereas they actually had a very extended view of purgatory. In practice, that's what they did. They speculated that the purification of... God's interested in purification. You start it now, you get it later. Much better to do it now than later. That's, you know, and we're into speculation territory, but they had a very strong view of that. But that's kind of where you end up, right? Yeah. Universal salvation, which is that if you're not in Christ when you die, then something happens that's bad. Yeah, well, not necessarily. Yeah, something happens, who knows what. But I mean, the issue is, which I talked about in the first talk, was that they knew a little bit about, but that's where the 16th, 17th century came in, and we discovered another three quarters of the world who've never heard of this gospel and what's happened to them, you know, and that's where the Cambridge Neoplatonists said, you, you've got to be kidding that God is by choice sending all these people to hell. They've never heard of it. You know, they've got no chance. It's just so awful to contemplate. So, um, and it sort of says, well, God's communicating to everybody. Christ is the only method of salvation. It's a question of how and when that's appropriated. But there are many, you know, I loved the book, Eternity in Their Hearts. You ever read that book? By Don Richardson. Um, he, uh, he was a very effective young evangelist to the Danis in Irian Jaya, West Papua, that I've, I've had a lot to do with. They were cannibals at the time, but he found things in their story that said, oh, why didn't you mention that? that? And it was like, oh, God was revealing himself. In their particular case, they had a legend of a thing called the Peace Child. And... Um, they totally rejected the gospel. They were a group of people who their primary virtue was uh, betrayal. betrayal. Um, they had a single word which can only be translated as fattened by friendship for the slaughter. So the smartest thing I can ever do is absolutely love you for a year and then eat you. Judas. And, and so he told the gospel story and that, that Judas they thought was fat. Man, he betrayed God with a kiss. Wow, what a hero. Let, let's become disciples of Judas. And he, that, that broke his heart. Like, you know, after two years, they got to the stage of wanting to believe in Judas, not Jesus. And uh, so um, he, uh, and then he found out, he said he was, he was going to leave them because he, he, he just gave up. And they didn't want him to leave because he was useful. <laughs> well, they weren't fattening him up, but they liked his medicine, they liked his tools, they liked... But all the miscommunication, I actually met him and I spoke to him, it's just hilarious because all the miscommunication, like, he, you know, he told me that um, when he was learning the language, he kept pointing to things, so what's that? And... They'd mention a word, then say, well, what's that? And they mentioned the same word. Well, what's that? And they mentioned the same word. And he's thinking, these people are bloody, they're monosyllabic. They've just got one word. And they're giving the word for finger. And they're thinking, this guy is a really slow learner. Like, he just can't get it. And uh, the funniest story of all was his wife, because they had a little baby, right? And they, had, they brought all this canned baby food to feed the child from. And they had, you know, all the... And the women in the village were wondering what's in the cans, you know. So they were like looking and experimenting. And eventually their hypothesis was, well, the picture on the outside must be a picture of the animal that's in the cans. And then they found a picture with a little baby on it. They thought, we thought we were cannibals. They eat their babies, these people, you know. Uh, so, but what they, what they found was um, 
They immediately said, no, we'll make peace. He said, you, haven't got to, you can't make peace. Yeah, we'll make peace. We do it with the peace child. What do you mean? So the next day, what happened was that the two warring tribes lined up either side of the river. All the women were there with their babies crying. And they walk up and down. They choose a baby for each He thought they were going to kill the babies. They didn't. They swapped the baby. And that baby's the peace child. As long as that baby lives in our village, we're at peace with you. Jesus is God's peace child. They said, well, why didn't you tell us that in the first place? Now we get it. And just a mass, I mean, the biggest conversion probably in 20th century evangelism happened up in, in those tribes. I've had the privilege of working closely with them. They're just phenomenal people. Hundreds of thousands of them came to Christ. It's like, and then he said, well, hang on, God had already given them a story. He's speaking to everyone. That was a, he wrote, then wrote a bigger book called Eternity in Their Heart. So the idea of God is communicating via a variety of means to many people. It's, his picture. But, you know, I, I think um, this definitely opens up a whole can of worms. I mean, I read Ephesians the other day as an example, saying to myself, well, if I put on a cosmic redemption, restitution of all things hat, hat now I'll put on that hat. Now let, now, now let me read Ephesians all the way through and see if it makes more or less sense with that paradigm. Uh, so that was an interesting exercise. Yeah, the incredible thing of eternity in their hearts is there is not one story, there are many stories of how God reached the people. You get the people, the Gwen up in, in, in Burma, the other one there, and <coughs> has, has, a, has something which is relevant to them. I mean, the Gwen, you talk about the Gwen is exactly the same. They had a vision mm-hmm. of somebody coming with a book. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, they kept on living, and we can change with the Quran. No, no, that wasn't it. And then American missionary came with the Bible. Mm. And that is, it's, it's like that they've been prepared for that for a long time. Yes, no, that was a great story. Yeah, indeed. Okay, well, plenty to think about, eh, for us yeah. all. <laughs>